Um, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll start reading in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies And those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this, your word, to our hearing. That as we study this word that you superintended for the Hebrew Christians of the first century by your spirit and that you superintended for your church in all ages, that, that your spirit would give us ears to hear what he is saying to the church. That we would rightly understand the gift of the incarnate son for us, the captain of our salvation the author and perfecter of our faith, the one to whom we look, that we would give thanks to you, Father, for the gift of him, that we would rejoice in him, trusting in him, receiving him and resting upon him, knowing that he, as our captain, will carry us home to glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every Christmas we gather to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. We come together in light of the most profound mystery. The eternal Son of God has taken upon himself humanity. He became incarnate. He is truly God, and truly man. We celebrate with the church throughout the centuries the Son who was begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, that he is also in these latter days for us and our salvation born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood. Both the history and the doctrine of the incarnation matter. History. What's the history of the incarnation? 
The eternal Son of God became incarnate, became a man, body and soul. And he lived, and he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. The doctrine, the Son did so. The Father sent the Son to do so for us and for our salvation. So today I want to focus on three historical and doctrinal truths regarding the incarnate Son whom we celebrate. Now that's not six points, in case you were concerned. Three, but we're going to get at the history and doctrine together. The three lessons that we'll learn about the incarnate Son today are regarding his, appoint, his appointment, here's his appointment as the captain of our salvation. His consecration as the captain of our salvation and his mission as the captain of our salvation. So his appointment, his consecration, and his mission. That's what we're going to cover. So let's look at the first one, his appointment as the captain of our salvation. And maybe to state that, I'd say this way. The incarnate son was appointed the captain of our salvation by the Father. I want you to hear that. What do we want? I want you to gather about the appointment of the Son. He is appointed by the Father. Look at Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, he, who is the he? It's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. In other words, for whom, that he's the final cause, and by whom the, if you will, the first cause of all things. In other words, the Father, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now you said, where's this word? You might wonder, where's this word captain coming from when I say the captain of our salvation? I'm translating the word founder there, the founder of our salvation, as captain. He is the founder of our salvation, but, but he is not just the founder of our salvation. He is on a mission of bringing many sons to glory, of leading us to glory. And thus, I think the translation captain is a bit more helpful. He not only is the founder of our salvation, but the captain of it. He is carrying us, leading us, bringing us to glory. So with that said, the focus here, though, on this point is that the Father is the one who appointed him. The Father is the one, is the person being indicated by he for whom and by whom all things exist. The Father is the one who made the founder or captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. The Father is the one who is ultimately bringing many sons to glory by appointing a captain to lead us home. Now, I want to take some moments to consider the Father this morning. And there's a reason why I want to do this. As we enter the Christmas season, we put so much focus on Jesus, and, and rightly, you can't put too much focus on Jesus, so don't misunderstand me. You can never put too much focus on him. Unless, in putting your focus on Jesus, you forget to put any focus on the Father who sent him. I think we subtly begin to believe that the Son came to earn the Father's love for us. We wrongly begin to believe that the Father loves us because the Son died for us. 
We begin to succumb to the false idea that the father is sort of this angry, distant, absentee, Old Testament God looking to drop the hammer. And the son is the loving, gracious, New Testament God who wants to save us. And that is altogether false, erroneous, blasphemous. We, I think, think of Jesus like idolaters often think of their sacrifices. Idolaters conceive of the gods as, as needing to be appeased by them, to be bought off through their sacrifices. Well, I stepped over this God's garden in some way. He's offended. Now I need to offer a sacrifice to buy him off, to, to buy myself back into his favor. And we begin to think of the Father being like these false gods of the idolaters. He's like these capricious gods who need to be appeased, need to be bought off. So Jesus came and he sacrificed himself to appease the Father and and buy him off. Jesus came to, to coax him into loving us, to get us back into his favor. And that's an utterly false notion. So the first thing I want us to consider is that the Father appointed, the Father appointed Jesus as the captain of our salvation. Did you hear that? The Father appointed him. The Father is seeking to bring many sons to glory. And the Father appointed Jesus and consecrated him as the captain of our salvation. The Father is not a capricious deity waiting for us to, buy, us to provide a sacrifice to buy him off. The Father's not a distant deity waiting to drop the hammer on us while Jesus just kind of jumps in front of him in our place. The Father is the one to be praised for the whole of our salvation. The whole of our salvation is the Father's design. You hear that? The Son is the one who ministerially carries out the whole of our salvation, but the Father is the one who decrees it and designs it. The whole of our salvation proceeds from the loving decree of the Father. And I could multiply texts to this end, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's death for us is the demonstration of the Father's love for us. Do you hear that? It's the demonstration of the Father's love for us. It isn't earning the Father's love for us. It isn't buying the Father off. His death is demonstrating the Father's love for us. Here in his love, not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us. It's not that we loved him and went out and bought him off. He first loved us and he gave his son as the propitiation, the wrath bearer, the satisfier of wrath against us or justice against us for us. He gave his son as a propitiation. Easy for me to say. Should drink some water. Try to say that 10 times fast. Propitiation for our sins. The whole of our salvation is predestined by the gracious will of our Father. The Father, listen, from Paul in Ephesians 1, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Who designed that for us? Who's being blessed? The Father. The whole of our salvation is designed by the wisdom of the Father. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's the Father in his love and grace and wisdom who designed and decreed the whole of our salvation. The Father does not love us because Jesus came and died for us. The Father loves us, therefore Jesus came and died for us. Do you hear that? Christmas is this massive celebration of the Father's love and grace and wisdom demonstrated in Christ. I suppose it's appropriate that we give gifts at Christmas. Assuming, of course, that we are doing so to remember the all-loving, all-gracious, all-wise gift of the Father to us. He gave us. He, the Father, gave us the captain of our salvation. The Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And that leads to our second lesson. Not only the Father appoint him as the captain of our salvation, we want to look at his consecration, not just his appointment as the captain of our salvation by the Father, but his consecration to this mission. The incarnate Son is consecrated as the captain of our salvation through the suffering of death. Hear that? He's appointed by the Father. He's consecrated through the suffering of death. Look at Hebrews 2.10 again. For it was fitting that he, now I'm going to come back to that word fitting because that's an interesting thing for the author of Hebrews to say. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory, <clears throat> sorry, look, this last phrase, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's fitting that he would save us, how? By making the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now that word for made perfect here points to consecration or dedication, to the setting apart. Jesus, the incarnate son, is being sanctified, set apart, consecrated for his mission by the Father. How? Through the suffering of death. And this begins to answer a question begged by the previous passage. Last week we were in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. And notice what verse 9 says. Just go back there to look at what verse 9 says. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, now what good... Here's the Jewish audience's mind. What good is, is a Messiah who suffers and dies? What good is that Messiah? Jesus came and suffered death. And we're told by Paul that that's a stumbling block to Jews. Why? Because the Jews expected the kind of deliverance 
that Moses brought. The kind of deliverance that this language of a captain, Joshua, brought. They were looking for a new exodus. Not out of Egypt this time, out of imperial Rome. They were looking for a restoration of Israel, the 12 tribes, the northern and southern kingdom united as a glorious nation with the Messiah who sits on the throne of David forever and who conquers all their enemies and delivers to them peace. That's what they're looking for. So what's this business about a Messiah who suffers death? What is this about a son who's born, the son of David, so that he might taste death for everyone? Isn't he supposed to deliver death to everyone? Not taste death for everyone. Now, now notice, note the language at the beginning of, of 2.10. For it was fitting. It was fitting. Pay attention to that language. It was fitting that the Father should consecrate the captain of our salvation in this way, through the suffering of death. It was fitting. Why? Why is it fitting? Why, why is this the right or appropriate or fitting way for the Father to consecrate the founder of our salvation? Why not just consecrate him with immediate exaltation to rule and reign and bring in the kingdom right then and there, conquer the enemies, deliver them like Moses did from Egypt, like Joshua did as he carried them into Canaan? Why is it fitting that he would consecrate the founder of our salvation or the captain of our salvation with suffering? Why not just send a powerful leader who could free Israel from foreign oppressors and sit on the throne of David? There's two reasons, and we have to grasp these. First, the goal of his mission which I'll return to really at the end, the goal of his mission is far more glorious than just political salvation. I want you to hear that, by the way, you know, my fellow Americans. (laughs) The goal of our salvation in Christ is far more glorious than political salvation. Israel missed this, and I fear some American evangelicals missed this. Far more glorious. And second, the problem of Israel and all men, the problem of Israel and all men is far more damning than suffering under foreign oppressors. The goal, which we'll turn to in a minute, is to lead many sons to glory, to bring us into his glorious presence. The problem is sin and the judgment for sin, which is death. The problem is that we all fall short of the glory of God. We have no right nor ability to enter into his glorious presence because of our sin. We need to understand that God for whom and by whom all things exist is holy, holy, holy. He is the righteous and holy judge and we are his creatures and we have rebelled against him. And his justice requires our condemnation. His wrath must, it is necessary that his just wrath be vindicated. 
and we are those upon whom his just wrath abides. So how shall we escape? How shall we be saved? How can God forgive us and declare us righteous so that we can even enter his holy presence while not violating his own righteousness and justice? So you say, well, God could just wave his wand and give forgiveness and declare us righteous, but that would make God an unjust liar, would it not? So how can he do this? How has this reconciliation occurred so that we can bring many son- he can bring many sons to glory? Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Keep your hand in Hebrews 2. In case you wonder if the problem just hits other people and sort of slides past you or hits you, let's start in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, in other words, Jews and non-Jews, are under sin. All are under sin. As it is written, now he's quoting from the Psalms again, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That's a universal negative. Everyone is not righteous. Hear that? Everyone is unrighteous. None is righteous. No, in case you missed his point, not one. No one understands. Again, universal negative. Everyone is included here. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Now, in another place, Paul will tell us, for example, in Acts 17, that, that men are seeking for God. So what does he mean here by no one seeks for God? He means something quite different than what he means in Acts 17. They're seeking around like idolaters, not seeking the true God. No one seeks for the true God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even One, Merry Christmas. None of you do good. None of you are righteous. No, not one. Look down at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Listen, you are not going to stand before God one day and say, let me line up my list of virtues and good works. Let me tell you why the things I did wrong really weren't my fault. They were my parents' fault. They were my culture's fault. They were my teacher's fault. They were all somebody else's fault. I was provoked into that by my wife, whatever it is. You're not going to say anything like that. Let me tell you why my good works really outweigh my bad. Let me tell you why deep down I was really a good person. No, what he says is, you're going to stand before God and your mouth is going to be stopped. There'll be nothing for you to say because when you see him in all his holiness, your mouth will be stopped because you will, for the first time, recognize the depth of your own sin and unworthiness 
and you'll have nothing left to say. Nothing. For by works of the law, verse 20, no human being will be justified in his sight. Not one will be declared righteous in his sight. Not one by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of of sin. All the law does is tells you about your sin. It holds out this mirror in front of you. Shows you how you've rebelled. So that's our problem. We're going to stand before God, none of us righteous, none of us good, all of our mouths shut, all of us condemned with the wrath of God justly bearing down upon us in and of ourselves. That's our problem. So what's the hope? What's the good news? This is why the Father consecrated the Son to be the captain of our salvation through suffering. Here's what we want to get at. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3 of Romans. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If he's bringing many sons to glory, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, there has to be a resolution for that. What's the resolution? Verse 24, and are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. See, we didn't go buy him off like idolaters. We didn't bring the sacrifice. He did. Who brought the sacrifice for your sin? You sinned. You stand condemned. Who brought the sacrifice for your sin? God did. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Wrath bearer, satisfaction by his blood. In other words, through the suffering of death. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against you through the suffering of death, through the shedding of his blood. Now look what he goes on to say, to be received by faith. Faith is simply resting in Christ's finished work at the cross. Simply receiving what he's done. Look what he goes on to say. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he might be just, held up to be righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why? Because God is declaring the ungodly just, the unjust or unrighteous to be righteous. Now how is that done? Because Jesus was put forward in our place. He paid our penalty at the cross, and his righteous life is credited to our accounts. So that God is just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. 
This is why consecrating the captain of our salvation through suffering is fitting for the Father. Why is it fitting for him? Because his righteous justice, his righteousness is upheld. And his love and grace are extended. This work makes God both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is why Jesus is the only one who can be the founder or captain of our salvation. He is the only one who can be captain of God's sons and who can lead us safely home. Only him. And this leads to our third lesson this morning. His mission. His mission. What is the incarnate son's mission? The incarnate son's mission as the captain of our salvation is to bring us to eternal glory. It's to bring us to eternal glory. Look back again at Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, that being the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder or captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. What is the end? What is the goal? What is the purpose of the Father setting the Son as the incarnate Christ and consecrating him through the suffering of death? The goal is to bring many sons to glory. The goal is to carry you to heaven. You've fallen short of the glory of God. And so the captain of your salvation has come, consecrated to the suffering of death, so that he might bring you to glory. To carry you beyond Canaan, the land promised to Abraham. To carry you to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, the city whose architect and builder is God, the one to whom Abraham ultimately looked. In other words, this captain is not leading you out of Egypt and into Canaan. He is leading you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son. In the great Old Testament work of Moses and Joshua, the Lord led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And when he led them out of slavery in Egypt, he led them into the promised land. And he gave them the tabernacle where he would dwell and where they would behold his glory. But that exodus and those redeemers, Moses and Joshua, and that land, Canaan, and that tabernacle, which eventually was built into a temple, were types. They were things that pointed forward to something greater. They were types. It's like a picture. If I have a picture of my wife, it's a type. Shows me the truth about her. She's the woman typed in that picture, right? But that picture is not her. That picture points me to something far greater. The substance, the reality, my actual wife. So when I look at a picture when I'm away from my wife, the picture is great, reminds me of her, keeps her in mind for me, points me to the reality. But when I finally see her, it would be a thing quite odd 
for me to ignore her and stare at the picture. Would it not? I put the picture down, and I look to the reality, the substance. The Exodus account, where Moses redeems Israel and brings them out of Egypt from under slavery to Pharaoh, the land that they're being taken to, the land of Canaan, the tabernacle where God dwells, are all types. They're all pointing forward to something greater, a greater exodus. The exodus out of slavery to sin and death. The exodus out of slavery to someone greater than Pharaoh, that is Satan. The exodus led by a much greater redeemer, the incarnate son, leading us to a greater land, the new heavens and new earth, to a greater tabernacle, and an enduring and eternal glory. You know who the greater tabernacle is? Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 1 of John 1. Verse 14 of John 1. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled. That's the Word. Dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. We beheld His glory. The Lord Jesus is leading us on a new exodus, not just out of the grip of a foreign oppressor, but out of the grip of sin and suffering and death, not just into a better earthly land, but into the glorious blessings of his heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. He's not just leading us to a temporary tabernacle, but to the glorious presence of God where he is himself the temple. Look with me at Revelation chapter 21. Chapter 21. I want you to hear, as we read this passage, where the captain of our salvation, Jesus, is bringing us, where he's leading us, where he's carrying us. And he will not fail. Listen to where he's bringing us. Verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now drop down to verse 22. And I saw no temple 
in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. When your gates never have to be shut, that's because it's safe and secure from the enemies. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who are the sons following the captain of salvation into glory. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the promise that Christmas holds out to us. The Father, in his love and wisdom and grace, sent the Son of God to become incarnate for us and for our salvation, to humble himself, become a man, and suffer death on a cross, to be consecrated as the captain of our salvation, and as the captain of our salvation, to lead us to glory, to take us home. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would Rejoice in Jesus, the gift of him from your loving and kind hand as the captain of our salvation, as the one who was consecrated to the suffering of death to bring us home. May we remember this Christmas even as we begin to get caught up in family and friends and gifts and parties and all of those things, Father, may we remember that the greatest gift of love is the gift of your Son from your hand. May we remember that He became man so that He might die our death in our place being consecrated as the captain of our salvation and leading us home to eternal glory. May we give great thanks as we reflect continually this holiday 
on how loving and gracious and wise is this good news, the gospel that we proclaim. The gospel of the Son of God who became man, died on the cross, rose from the dead for us and our salvation. We pray, Father, for those who don't know Jesus, those who aren't looking at him in faith, those who still have your wrath abiding upon them. We pray they would look to your Son in faith and be saved. We pray that the captain of our salvation would rescue them and bring them home as well. We trust you to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.